0: Our scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, come from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, Psalm 23, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, and John chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, and 28 through 38. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 destroyed many businesses and homes. One particular family in Chicago lost much of their successful business in that fire not long after losing a child to pneumonia. Despite these tragedies, the father didn't give up and the business started to thrive again. Just two years after the fire, his wife Anna and their four daughters set sail for Europe while the businessmen stayed a little longer to handle some business issues, planning to catch a ship a few days later. Then tragedy struck again. The ship collided with another, causing it to go under in just 12 minutes. 226 passengers died, including the four daughters. Anna was picked up and eventually made it to Cardiff, Wales, where she wired her husband the awful news. A few days later, the husband and wife were reunited. On his journey across the Atlantic, the grieving Horatio Spafford wrote to him, It is well with my soul. It boggles the mind that one who has experienced so much tragedy can still cling to faith with such strength. David was no stranger to tragedy. He was unjustly hunted by King Saul. He and his loyal men were chased all over Israel. In addition to the fear of capture and death, they faced hunger, bad weather, the loss of their reputations, and so on. Some of David's men were likely killed. Some probably abandoned him. And yet, despite it all, David clung to his faith in God. It was during this time of extreme trials that he wrote the 23rd Psalm. It is a testament to David's enduring faith in God's goodness. The imagery of the 23rd Psalm occurs in three places, the fields, the banquet hall, and the temple. We tend to focus on the shepherding imagery in this famous Psalm, but that only covers the first third of the text. It takes all three together to paint the full picture of Yahweh's protection, blessing, and our resulting call to worship. All three images are important And today, we'll look at each in turn. David starts the 23rd Psalm using the metaphor of a shepherd in the fields with his sheep to describe God's care for us and for him personally. David is blessed because of all those who could be his shepherd, he has Yahweh. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David knows his needs will be fulfilled because of who his shepherd is. He goes on in verse 2 to explain why. Yahweh makes me lie down in green pastures. A green pasture is a place of both safety and plenty. In his wisdom and care, the Lord ensures his sheep have both. But there's also the laying down, which means rest. He leads me beside still waters. Unlike people, sheep don't have hands to cup water. They need a pool or a gently flowing stream to get plenty to drink. A shepherd could cup his hands and get a drink from a small waterfall, but his sheep could not. This is yet another image of God meeting our needs, which he was, a, was especially poignant in the dry climate of Israel, where rain was primarily seasonal. The availability of water during much of the year was limited. It took an experienced shepherd to know where enough water could be found for his flock and to know how to get there before any of his sheep were lost to dehydration. We're only two verses in, but here the flow of David's thought gets tricky. Verse 3 starts, he restores my soul. What does restoring one's soul have to do with shepherding? Is David breaking from the shepherding metaphor here? He might be. However, the Hebrew word napsi, which is translated as soul, is just as often translated as life, including in other psalms. And either definition works equally well here. I guess the question is, does he restores have more to do with what came before or what comes after? Verses 1 and 2 are all about physical needs, so it would make more sense then For verse 3 to read, he restores my life, in which case David could still be following the shepherding metaphor. A shepherd was expected to treat the wounds of his sheep, which would fit with having its life restored. However, if we go with the translation restores my soul, that seems to fit with one of the interpretive options in the remainder of verse 3. Verse 3 goes on to say, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yahweh is leading us for his glory. I don't think in modern society today that we understand God's glory very well. I know I don't. Glory just really isn't on our radar. Apart from visiting natural wonders like the Grand Canyon or hearing stories of astronauts who have seen earth from space. But even then we are only getting a secondary glimpse of God's glory through his creation. For the most part, God's glory is something I think we'll just have to wait until we can experience it in eternity. Everything on this side of death is so lacking in glory that we just can't even come close to fully appreciating it. But the other question of this verse is a translational one. Are we being led down right paths or paths of righteousness? Translators disagree. Right paths would fit with the shepherding metaphor. It would simply mean that our shepherd takes us the best way possible from one pasture to another. He avoids paths that are unnecessarily long or arduous or with too many predators. If the proper translation is paths of righteousness, then the shepherding metaphor is clearly broken and David is writing about God guiding him towards obedience. As I touched on earlier, if the translation of the previous phrase should be restores my soul, then restores, instead of restores my life, then paths of righteousness works just fine. Whether or not David intended to break the shepherding metaphor in verse three, he is definitely back into it in verse four. The reference to walking through the valley of the shadow of death seems most likely to be simply a reference to a deep valley. Only Bible translations based on the King James have anything to do with death anywhere this Hebrew word is used that typically just means dark. Dark valleys could be potentially dangerous for sheep because they are likely steep, which means they could be hard to climb out of, And they could also be a good place for predators to hide. A dark valley could also be a reference to a wadi, which is a very narrow gorge formed by flooding. So narrow, in fact, that the only way out is to reach the other end. Wadis are common on either side of the Jordan River Valley. This fits with the next phrase, I fear no evil. The Hebrew word translated evil is just as often translated as bad hurt, or harm. So evil in this context probably has more to do with bad outcomes than with moral evil as we would typically think of it. To say I will fear no harm makes particular sense in light of the explanation, which is thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod is the small club that shepherds use to beat off predators and the staff is the walking stick that was used to guide errant sheep in the right direction. So the sheep need not fear predators in the deep valleys because the shepherd with them has the tools to protect them. Now that we've made it through the shepherding metaphor of the fields, we can reflect on what David has said about his God so far in this Psalm. Yahweh meets his physical needs of food, water, rest, healing, guiding, and protection. Now depending on one's interpretive choices that I've already discussed, the healing indicated in restores my soul can be of a spiritual nature. So can the guiding indicated in the next phrase. The fact of the matter is neither interpretation is wrong. Jesus meets our physical and spiritual needs as our good shepherd. Let's shift now to the banquet hall. In verse 5, David writes, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That seems a little odd. Who wants to sit down to a meal with your enemies watching? Well, to the ancient Hebrew mindset, that would be just grand. Having a table prepared for you means that you are being honored as a guest, while the enemies can only watch. They aren't invited. They don't get to eat. It's one thing to get to enjoy a good meal, but quite another to be elevated above one's enemies in the process. Remember, ancient Israel was a strong honor and shame culture, so to have one's honor magnified by being invited to a banquet while one's enemies have shame heaped on them as those who are uninvited was about as good as it could get. But it doesn't stop there. David says, Thou anointest my head with oil. It was common practice in the ancient world to provide various fragrant oils at the best banquets to anoint guests. We are accustomed to oil being used in the Bible for healing or commissioning for a task, as we just heard about with David's story this morning. But this is entirely different. This anointing was an over-the-top luxury to make one's guests smell nice and to have a sheen on their foreheads. There was no purpose in anointing at a banquet other than to make it more pleasant. So, this was an indication that this banquet was a really good one. And just a reminder the enemies can only watch. Lastly, David writes that the banquet, that his cup overflows. The extravagance of this banquet is such that if some wine spills, we don't care, there's plenty. Is your cup almost empty? Have some more. We can only assume that the food is the same way. No one is going to leave this banquet hungry. Now, we don't have any indication that David is making this banquet into something eschatological, like the marriage feast of the Lamb, but I can't help but connect the two. The great feast we have to look forward to in eternity will be every bit as extravagant as this one. we have no reason to spiritualize the banquet that David imagines here. He is describing God's exalting that he, as a faithful, God-fearing Hebrew, expects to eventually receive much to the chagrin of his enemies. David already told us in the fields that Yahweh meets his physical needs. Now God is going beyond that to give David justice. He gets honored while his ungodly enemies have to watch. Notice David says nothing about getting his own revenge. He is relying on God to provide justice. And we know from the story of his life that when David had the opportunity to kill a sleeping Saul, he did not. This psalm does, in fact, reflect David's true character. David expects it all to work out in the end because he trusts In the justice of God. The final scene in Psalm 23 is the temple. This scene may only be the final verse of the psalm, but it is also the climax and final thought, so it is very important. David writes, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It is a little surprising to hear David say this, considering all the hardship he went through. Not only was he hunted by Saul as a young man, but later in his life was hunted by his own son in a full-blown civil war. So was David wrong? Was this simply a statement of overly simplistic optimism? I'm gonna say no for two reasons. First, David is writing poetry. So this is about expressing his feelings toward God more so than a statement of fact. Let's not treat this like a Pauline epistle where every phrase is laden with solid theology. Second, David isn't expressing a belief in only good things to come. The moment something bad happens, such a belief would be proven wrong. And then what would be left of David's faith in God? That can't possibly be what David is saying here. It's more his confidence in God's care for him. God is good. Even when we experience hardship, God is merciful, even when things are challenging in the moment. Remember, David just told us his enemies are watching. He didn't say he never had enemies in the first place. It is possible that when David says, all the days of my life, he is getting at the sum total of his days. In other words, when he is on his deathbed and looks back, he won't see a life free of all pain, but rather a life characterized by goodness and mercy. But that's not the case for some of us, is it? I don't know if anyone in this room feels this way, but some people experience more tragedy than seems to be their fair share. What of them? Does David's confidence in God simply fail them? This is an incredibly complex question and one I'm not prepared to give a full answer to in the little time that remains today, though I don't think we could ignore it either based on how much suffering we see in the world around us. The best answer I can give has two parts. First, we shouldn't expect a life full of blessing upon blessing, but like Job, should rather trust in God's goodness that our eternal blessing far outweighs our temporary hardships. And second, even when we do suffer, Christ is there with us every step of the way. He suffers with us, just as he did on the cross. That includes, as I said last week, that Christ redeems our suffering for eternal purposes. That's a short but honest answer to the suffering of mankind the last part is verse uh, verse 6 says and i shall dwell in the house of the lord forever this can actually be a little confusing and is in fact the most debated part of psalm 23 because it appears to be making a statement of faith in eternal life with god but that's not actually what david is saying when david refers to the house of the lord it means the temple or at the time that was written, the tabernacle. Just look at how the phrase is used in Psalm 27 for. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You can see here that David is using the terms house of the Lord and temple interchangeably. It would make sense then to ask, How does one dwell in the tabernacle forever? The tabernacle is earthly and temporary. There are two parts to this. First, the Hebrew word for dwell, which happens to appear in both Psalm 23.6 and 27.4, can alternatively be translated as return to. If that's the case, then David is saying, I will return to the tabernacle. This translation is supported by the more accurate understanding of the final phrase, which says, for length of days, or roughly, all the days of my life, as translated by the Christian Standard Bible and some others. In other words, David is not saying that he will live forever in God's house, or even live forever in the tabernacle, which wouldn't make sense. What he is saying is that he will return repeatedly to the tabernacle, for as long as he lives. This understanding of verse 6 makes sense because nowhere in this psalm is David speaking of eternity or life after death. In the fields, the banquet hall, and the temple, David is praising God for his care in this life. This may seem strange to us because as Christians, we tend to focus so much on the perfect life that awaits us in eternity. But David wants us to see God's goodness in the here and now. This understanding also makes sense because as a sheep of the good shepherd, David must go back out into the fields again. I don't want to press this image too much here, but sheep got to do what sheep do. That includes going through the deep valleys at times, but always returning to safe pastures. Like a sheep yearns to be in the presence of its protective shepherd, David yearns to be in the presence of Yahweh, who meets his physical needs, brings him justice, and is a good, loving God. David wants to worship. If we all felt like David, it would be standing room only in every church. I feel that I must apologize that this examination of Psalm 23 turned out to be so complicated. It is filled with translational issues that can't be ignored if we are going to properly understand what David wrote. If I've left you confused, then I invite you to review Psalm 23 later this week in as many versions as you care to, noticing the the translational differences. None of them are wrong. The editorial teams simply differed in their interpretation of certain words or preferred the greek septuagint over existing hebrew manuscripts or vice versa many i'm sure would disagree with my interpretation that i shared with you today but i'm just trying to do the best i can to make sense of what david wrote so long ago as we prepare to receive communion let us approach the altar with David's sense of delight in God. Though we today tend to spiritualize David's promise in his praise of Yahweh in the fields, the banquet hall, and the temple, David was right to worship God for his tangible goodness in this life. We shouldn't let our vision of eternity blind us to the blessings at our feet. God is good, Now and always, and even when tragedy strikes, as those who put their faith in Christ, we are right to say, it is well with my soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.